KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. Dr. Mark DiNubili is an infectious disease doctor and the chief medical officer of BioEgis Therapeutics, which is located in Morristown, New Jersey. I had talked to him about a month ago about a therapy they have tested in pneumonia patients before the COVID-19 pandemic, but they think that their therapy could be used to treat the most severe cases of coronavirus. They've been trying to get FDA fast-track approval, which is very difficult today because the FDA is being overwhelmed. I wanted to touch base with him to see how the trials are going, and I also wanted to ask him about some other things, like the warning just issued by the NIH against using a malaria therapy that had looked like it might hold some promise. The first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to start with your trials. Can you give us a refresher on what your therapy is? Yeah, so our therapy is based on making a protein that occurs naturally in the body called plasma gel solid. It's a protein that circulates in fairly high quantities in health, but when you have a disease or a condition that's serious, the gel solid levels drop. Gel solid seems to regulate the immune system's response. Immunity creates inflammation. Usually that's good, but it can get overdone. And when it becomes too much, inflammation turns from a friend to a foe. Gelsalin helps regulate the amount of immunity you have. So with COVID-19, the virus gets in there, starts disrupting things in the lung. The immune system reacts to it appropriately. But in many patients, as the virus starts going away, the immune system doesn't shut down. And because the immune system doesn't shut down, it's now causing unnecessary damage And it's usually uh, in COVID patients that immune response or that inflammatory response that causes the severe lung damage, the need for ventilation, and then in some cases, unfortunately, death. Gelsalin appears to be a regulator of, of that switch from being actively beneficial to shutting down the injurious immune system. And so our drug is made to be identical to what's circulating in the plasma. In the inflammatory condition, the normal levels drop, and our hypothesis is that if we replace that, we can prevent the immune damage and help the patient do well. Our company finished a safety study done in Australia and the Republic of Georgia last year, which confirmed what we expected, that this naturally occurring protein was safe. But we haven't done what is known as proof of concept. That is given gelsalin to sick patients to see if it made them better. Since COVID, this was all in the works before COVID-19, but when COVID-19 came along, and since what gelsalin does is counteract 
what is thought to be the mechanism of injury in COVID-19, we tried to push forward. Unfortunately, despite the promises from the FDA, and this is not their fault necessarily, uh, they're just way behind in looking at things. And so we submitted uh, some materials to them, but are really kind of waiting for a response. And it was supposed to be in a day or two. Now it's two weeks and we still haven't heard. We are also talking with uh, uh, some other countries around the world. And our most promising conversation is happening with a university in Spain. Uh, The researchers there were actually looking at gel solid as treatment in lupus, which is an inflammatory but non-infectious disease. And they were interested in how gelsalin could modulate the inflammation in lupus. And when Spain got hit hard with COVID-19, they connected the dots, reached out to us about potentially doing a study there. And we have actually been engaged, including uh, through this weekend, with the regulatory agency there. So there is some chance that we could get started uh, with a clinical trial to show that gelsalin does good. We've so so far shown it doesn't do harm. Now we want to show that it does good in COVID-19 patients who are pretty sick. So that's where we are. Getting closer, but but we haven't formally got approval from anyone. Okay. So when you're talking about inflammation, is that what is being called right now the cytokine storm? Yes. The, okay. the cytokine storm is, they're a group of molecules that cells make to talk to each other. The cytokines often are pro-inflammatory. They tell other cells to go to the site of infection and kill the infection, which is where the inflammation comes from. When people are talking about cytokine storm, they're referring to the over-exuberant inflammation that does the patient in. And often that starts at a time when the virus, the amount of virus in the lung is already decreasing. So it's kind of interesting. Virus doesn't directly kill the patients. What it does is it triggers this cytokine storm or over-exuberant inflammation, and the body kind of overreacts to that. So even when the enemy is gone, when the virus levels are decreasing, it's still reacting, and that's what destroys the lung, leads to the respiratory failure and uh, sometimes death. Can you stop that once it starts, I've talked to a couple of infectious disease doctors about that, and it that seems to be the tricky part, right? Once that starts, it's nearly impossible to get a handle on it. I guess I'm not that pessimistic. <laughs> um, there is a period where it's revving up. The idea is that a little bit of inflammation at the beginning is needed to control the infection. Once it gets out of hand, though, it is damaging. And there's a magic moment, a window of opportunity where intervening can calm that down. Now, our evidence for that is based on animal data where we have given gel solid to animals who are sick with various kinds of pneumonia. We have influenza data. We have bacteria, a lot of different bacterial infections. We don't have any data on COVID-19 specifically, but we know that if we give uh, mice, in most cases, pneumonia, 
due to influenza or a bacterial infection and wait until they look pretty sick and are not doing very well and we give gelsalin back, we can improve the survival compared to just giving placebo, that is salt water. So it, it's clear that the inflammatory process is started and we are interrupting it or modulating it or down-regulating it with gel solid after it has started. Once it's out of control and once it's causing damage to the lung tissue or whatever organ is involved, you can't easily reverse that damage. But if you catch it early enough, not too early, but not too late, I think you can modulate it. And in the model of flu, we found that gelsalin led to a change from the pro-inflammatory markers, that is the ones that cause increased inflammation, over the course of a couple of days to a uh, markers that suggested lung repair. And so it became an anti-inflammatory uh, when anti-inflammatory treatment was indicated. And so I think to say that once it starts, it's it's a nuclear reaction. It's probably overstated and a little pessimistic. So you just mentioned there is that magical window. How do you know that you're in the magical window? And how do you know the patient isn't going to kind of turn around and get better and is going to enter this this kind of really damaging cytokine storm phase? How do you differentiate? Yeah, that That's a hard question. We do have data on the natural history and on the comorbidities that lead to bad outcomes. So what we would suggest is this is an intravenous drug. It would not be used for someone who could be treated as an outpatient. The WHO has a nine-point scale of severity. The lower part of that scale, zero to three, are pretty mild illnesses. Some of those patients get hospitalized, but they're usually not all that sick. The higher numbers tend to be sicker patients, and the very, very high numbers, like seven, eight, are basically near death. We would say that the way to treat with gelsalin is not treat the lowest numbers on the WHO scale, but to treat those in the middle. The ones at the very highest numbers may not be salvageable, but the ones in the middle are those who have significant disease and are likely to progress. When you combine that with knowing something about the patient, are they older? Do they have lung disease or heart disease? That creates kind of a risk profile for who will do badly. And so our plan, in summary then, is to use the patient profile to kind of get a sense of their risk and then the WHO severity scale to predict those who are at high risk of getting worse. That's the toughest yeah. situation, finding the right moment. Intervening too soon is unnecessary, costly, and may, I guess, theoretically do harm. Yeah, by cutting off right too- the, yeah, the, the process that needs to happen, right? Yes, that's always a concern that if we start too early. The good thing about gelsalin is that we think that by the time the patient is sick, the gelsalin levels have already fallen and the patient has done 
the things they need to do to get rid of the infection. So in some ways, we couldn't give them it, uh, the, the drug too early because the patients that haven't had the inflammatory response are the ones that are pretty much asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. What you feel when you get sick in many diseases including in COVID-19, is probably the beginning of the inflammatory response. So you can use the inflammatory response in feeling sick as an index that the body is already doing what it needs to do to get rid of the infection. Now what we need to do is prevent that infection from getting out of hand. In, in a way, what you're saying is absolutely true. We wouldn't want to start it before they were symptomatic. But once they're significantly symptomatic, that is uh, due to the immune response. And that's telling us that the immune response and its associated inflammation is already working. So I don't think there's much chance, even though theoretically it is a risk, uh, much chance that we would give gelsolin too early. The real uh, concern is that if we wait too long, we may miss our opportunity. And that's where the fine tuning comes in. So one thing you you talked about in your proof of concept study and the fact that you need to determine, one, does it work? And two, does it do no harm? And that brings me to the the news in the National Institutes of Health. They have a warning about that. The uh, drug combination, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, had seemed promising. And these are two common drugs that have been used for a very long time. But now they're saying... This may pose some toxicity. Are you familiar with that? And can you can you give us some insight into this? Yes, I, I can. And it shows the danger or potentially shows the danger of acting without having a controlled clinical trial where you where you're giving a placebo versus the active agent. So you can tell whether that active agent helps and whether it does harm. Hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin have been around for a while, and they both have some tendency to change your heart rhythm. There's something called the QT interval at the end of each cycle. That's the the point of vulnerability. That's where if something happened like an extra beat, it could it could send your heart into a bad rhythm. And we know that some drugs, including quinolones, which are used for everything up until recently, uh, they, they prolong that QT interval. And the longer that interval is, the, the more likelihood something bad can happen. So we know that hydroxychloroquine does that a little bit. We know that the uh, group of antibiotics, of which azithromycin is one, Erythromycin is another, which has been around even longer, tend to do a prolongation of that interval. And so the two drugs together, they actually are additive, at least, in prolonging that QT interval. So there is some risk with either alone, but with a combination in particular, that you're increasing the vulnerability uh, of an arrhythmia. When you put on top of that, the latest data suggesting that COVID-19 affects the heart. Exactly how it affects it is not so clear. It may cause an infection in the heart muscle, the so-called myocarditis, or it may cause 
uh, clot the form in the small vessels in the heart and cause some ischemic disease. That means the heart is not getting enough blood flow. But COVID-19 also affects the heart. And I think what the officials are telling us, if you add three things that can affect the heart, uh, the combination actually may be dangerous. And if you don't have proof that it works, you need to be careful because you're you're doing it based on a hope that it works with some very limited data. And you now know that there is a reason why it can do no harm. That's why I, I think when President Trump said, why not try it? That was a disservice. Because the reason not to try it is because you don't know if it causes harm in that combination in people with that disease. So if you try hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and you just happen to be unlucky that COVID is affecting your heart, those three things can cause harm, sudden death, in fact. And therefore, it is, it is you need to be somewhat careful. Now, you point out that azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine have been around for a long time. Individually, they're very safe. And in other situations, they seem to be reasonably safe. So I don't know that I would have been that worried up front. But now that we're seeing that some people have bad outcomes with those drugs, we have a mechanism why they might be having bad outcomes. And then we have that study from Brazil where they use chloroquine in high doses and more people died. And then I guess most recently, the study that has not been reviewed yet, but has been circulated from the VA, that patients given hydroxychloroquine with COVID-19 actually died more frequently than those who were given nothing. Uh, you have to be a little cautious. I know from my colleagues in the Philadelphia area that many of the programs were offering, not recommending, but offering hydroxychloroquine to patients with, uh, with COVID-19 at diagnosis. And some of them are rethinking that. I don't want to pronounce on what I think is best because I think it's a tough decision. But I think uh, there is a lot of concern growing in the last week or so that we may not be doing much good and actually exposing the patient to harm. So it's, it, it was a, a sense that with sick people, we needed to do something. In this case, we may have guessed wrong. Mm. We'll see. It's yeah. not settled yet. Why do we do you know why do they look at a hydroxychloroquine anyway for for treatment in covid? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure I know the full answer, but hydroxychloroquine is uh, the brand name is Plaquenil. It's used as a as an anti-inflammatory drug in lupus. It was known that this was a potent anti-inflammatory in multiple organs, including the cardiovascular system. Uh, so someone said, hey, maybe we should try it in COVID-19 because it's the cytokine storm or the overzealous inflammation that's causing the problem. And then the first report, which came out of France, looked at just viral load, that is how much COVID-19 you had in your lung. And they showed that if they gave patients hydroxychloroquine, the amount of uh, COVID-19 in the lungs decreased compared to patients who didn't get anything. 
And actually, azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine decreased it even more. So there was some early laboratory evidence, not necessarily clinically meaningful evidence, but laboratory evidence that the viral load decreased with these drugs. And uh, the French researchers wrote this up and it kind of caught on prematurely because people are in the pandemic mode, that this is a crisis and we have to do something. So I think that's how it got started. The FDA, there is an extensive approval process. And then, you know, you're in the middle of a pandemic and there are, uh, Dr. Burks warned that the next round of COVID-19 it could be over the winter and it could be even worse than what we're seeing now because it's going to be right in the middle of the flu season. Is yeah. there So how, I know these things move slowly. Do you think there's any way that we're going to have a treatment by then, be it your treatment or any other treatment? Yeah, I think there, there are possibilities. Uh, that's not to say that any, any of them are going to bear fruit. But there are the approved drugs that are being repurposed for COVID-19. There are drugs that are investigational but already approved for clinical trials that are being tested. And then there are the newcomers like us. I think in terms of the fall, I would hope that we have broken the barrier, at least have had our case heard, and that Gelsalin could be approved for a study. And once we get the IND, the uh, compassionate use, if it turns out that it looks very good and patients are uh, suffering again with this COVID-19 in the fall and next winter, that we would be able to use our drug uh, not only in clinical trials, but where appropriate in compassionate use. So I, I'm hopeful that there are so many things being tested that we will have something for the fall. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to have uh, something for this wave unless one of the drugs that's already being tested actively turns out to be effective. Remdesivir, maybe that's going to turn out to, uh, there's some positive data on that. That may turn out to be the nearest thing we have. Hydroxychloroquine is still a possibility. There's mixed data on that. I'm becoming, as I indicated, less optimistic about that, but that's that's a possibility that that could work either with or without azithromycin. And then there are a number of uh, fancier high-tech things that are being done to manipulate uh, the cytokines or to change the cells that produce cytokines in a way that might dampen the inflammation. Those things, I, I, I think, are on the, on the long-term horizon, not likely for this wave. But given all the drugs that are being tried and looked at, it's very possible. I hope that we get to the point where we do this study in Spain uh, let's say, starting in May, I mean, as a possibility. And if we show a clear-cut benefit, that will change the ball game in terms of the IND and testing it and getting everything ready so that we'll be in excellent position. But I don't think that it's, though I'm hopeful, I'm not really optimistic that that's going to happen in the U.S. during this wave, but Spain may open the door for the U.S. for the next wave. So how long, if you do that study in Spain, how long will that study take? And then once you get the results of that study, how quickly would you be able to get it into the U.S.? 
Yeah. Well, that that will ultimately depend on the FDA. But I think a positive study in Spain uh, that shows a benefit and no harm combined with our previous study, which showed no harm, should make the FDA react very quickly and give us fast track or expedited approval to use it. Uh, I think that could happen over the course of the summer, let's say. I mean, if we got terrific convincing results in a randomized, controlled, double-blind trial. And that's what we're proposing to do in Spain. Given the number of patients there are in Spain and the enthusiasm of the investigators, we think we would recruit very quickly. I would expect that we, if we get started in early May, we could have preliminary results that we could share. And this is, again, a guess, but a hopeful guess that we could start talking about what we saw in July, the FDA would look at that. And by the end of the summer, we'd be talking to them and moving ahead. Now we have, there are other hurdles, just to be honest. We're a small company with limiting fu- limited funding and we have limited stock on hand. We use most of our gel solid that we had manufactured for clinical use in our studies in Australia and the Republic of Georgia, to which I referred to. They were our safety trials. So we don't have a lot. There's a big demand on the, the, the drug manufacturers because there are a lot of people who want to make their drug to get their shelf stocked in case they have something that works. And we are in hard negotiations with the people that make our drug. But their first response was, we don't have a spot to start making more of your drug until the fall. Wow. Now, we're hoping that we can push that up. And particularly if we have uh, positive data from a Spanish trial, which is, which would move us, I think, then at least near the front of the line for the manufacturer, we could get it much quickly, because, uh, much more quickly, because once they start manufacturing it, we can probably have it informed to ship to doctors and hospitals within a month or so. Uh, so uh, the the key, I think our key is uh, to show benefit in, in Spain or somewhere else in, a, in this proof of concept study, open the FDA and other regulatory doors, get investment in our company, make enough drug so that by the fall, we're ready to go, at least in a compassionate use basis, and to do a bigger cl- uh, clinical trial. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and I wish you I wish you the best of luck. Well, thanks, Carol. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we'll talk again soon. Yeah, keep us posted. Let, let yep, us know how thanks. you fare in Spain. Yeah, we will. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.